last night from Sydney to New York, uh, across the world, people just uh, reveled away. And uh, there's this annual, for some, very soulful, if not even a bit mystical ritual every New Year's Eve. And we think that as we observe the passing of December 31st to January 1st, that there's some even almost mystical reset button that's pressed on our lives. But it's hard to have a sense of reset in our lives when there's so much tumult going on. Just even in our own family alone this week, uh, my daughter was slammed with a, a stomach bug, and then I got some form, I don't know if it was from her or from elsewhere, but I was pretty much slammed this week as well. And, and so just even in our own personal lives, it didn't feel very new. But more significantly, just on a, a level of just broader mainstream news and going on, we know this past week that several celebrities passed away, uh, that just uh, there was a bombing last night in Istanbul, and just so many things going awry in our world. Franklin Graham, he posted this poignant reflection on the passing of these celebrities, and uh, he says, this week, pop icon George Michael passed away at 53. Star Wars actress Carrie Fisher died at 60. And award-winning author Rich Adams at 96. From the unknown to the most well-known, we all have something in common. Death. And I appreciate what Franklin Graham says there. From the unknown to the most well-known, we all are equal at some point in life, especially at the end. Even closer to home, I just read in the Globe and Mail that an unassuming family of four that was just trying to enjoy Christmas Eve at their cottage near Peterborough, that they passed away in their sleep as their cottage burned to the ground. And so as the new year comes, it's, it's hard to have a sense of reset when there's all this tumult going on. But perhaps that is why our world needs New Year's Eve so desperately. We need some sense of, of catharsis. We need some sense of that there's a second chance, that there's hope. And so, for those of us who can make it out to some New Year's gathering and celebration and stay up that late, we think as positively as we can. And for one night, we revel away, perhaps in denial, perhaps in sincere enthusiasm, but all in all, an ironic and insoluble mix of those two sentiments. But one thing is certain. Our culture is dying for hope. A quandary and, and of mine, and just something that entirely perplexes me, though, then when I think about just our world longing for hope, even dying for hope, is that we settle. We settle for temporary hope. We, we look to passing pleasures and possessions and even people. We put our hope so much so in, in, in another person, but they pass away as well. And then is our hope to just uh, pass away. I heard on a radio interview of a lady, and she said, George Michael was my life. And I don't know if she meant that in literally or, or if it was just uh, an expression in the moment, but then what of her hope as it passed away? So we come to Scripture today. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I suggest to you that the only hope worth having, the only hope worth 
pursuing and chasing in this life is an eternal hope. We need to pine, we need to mine the, our life experiences. We need to search on, while we're on this earth for an, an eternal hope and hope that will last forever. And God speaks to us a picture of eternal hope here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 18 and 29. God has just given to David an eternal promise, an eternal covenant. And we know that this is an unconditional covenant. It doesn't depend on David's merit. It doesn't depend on David's performance. And this is attested to in several other places in Scripture that God is making an unconditional, eternal covenant with David to establish God's glory, His throne through the line of David. And so David has here an eternal hope. As a side note, for the rest of the series, we have a, a, about a month left uh, to the end of January. And I don't know if it just works out this way, but um, the remaining chapters that we're going to look at, I think they're very uh, appropriate just topics that will, will, will arise from the passages. And we're going to look at forgiveness, how David dealt with forgiveness, how David uh, faced temptation, how he experienced the redemption of his mistakes and how he also eventually faced death. And so you can look forward to that, and I think those are important uh, matters as we uh, look to a new year. So the bottom line is this. The bottom line that I hope that you'll see with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 18 29 today is this, that Jesus is hope. Jesus is hope. And I hope that's what you will take away in your soul as you walk into the new year. So again, I want to ask three questions, and it's, um, if you've been here the past few weeks, this might be becoming a bit vanilla, but, um, and it's a bit repetitive, but I, I, I'm, at least for the next while and as I preach, I want to just uh, organize my sermons this way because I realize this is also a good way to teach you guys how to read your Bible. And as you read your Bible, the three questions we're going to ask today are the three questions you should ask yourselves. First, what, what did the author mean to say to his original audience? And we need to try to understand that. And then second, in between these lines of, of biblical history and the biblical story, how is God working out his gospel story? Where do we see Jesus here? And then third, so what? What does this mean for my life? What I think the author wants us to see is first... David's personal hope. Second, his matchless hope. And third, his eternal hope. But because of uh, just my estimation of time, we're only going to be able to really go deep into David's personal hope. Well, we'll, I'll keep an eye on the time. And and if we can touch on his matchless hope and his eternal hope, then then we'll we'll touch on that. But we want to go deep first into David's personal hope. So we see this in verses 18 to 20. And the author here, he begins the section saying, then. And this little word, then, again, it's just a, a timer. And he wants us to look back to all that's happened. And so then points us to the fact that God has made this wonderful, miraculous promise. And David, he desperately wanted to build God a temple. He desperately wanted to build God a house because he was living in this tent. And here David was in his opulent 
palace of cedar. He was established as king. He was experiencing peace. And then King David uh, was promised by God, no, I'm going to do something much more than you could ever do for me. You can never outgive me. And my grace, what I want to do for you and through your line and for the whole world, it is beyond your imagination. And don't limit me to just the, the definitions of, of, of the life that you want to live by your kingship and, and just the, the, the dregs of this life. But instead, open up your heart and mind to trust me that I want to do something so much greater for you than you could ever think or imagine. And so... God, he disallows David from building a temple. Now, to David's credit, why did he want to build the Lord, Yahweh, a temple? Because to his credit, in his estimation of life, the most precious thing in life was to have the presence of God near to him. And that's something good that we need to to learn from David. He says in other psalms and other places, One thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I might dwell in your house forever and look upon and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The author continues then, King David, notice that it's King David in his status, his power. King David went in. And we're to assume here that he went into the tabernacle. He went into the tent, this temporary uh, just weak structure of just uh, this, this uh, canvas draped over poles that housed God's presence, that housed the Ark of the Covenant. He went into the tabernacle after God made this promise. This reminds me, and a picture that has always stuck with me, my mom, uh, when I was growing up, she made me read biographies of, of uh, people who did well in this life. And I remember reading a JFK biography, and I know that no analogy is perfect, and I know that he had a very questionable you know, life as well, but, but as I was reading this children's version of, of his biography uh, and just bringing out all the good of him, uh, there was this one picture that has stuck with me since that time. And it's this picture of him in the Oval Office, despite him trying to um, just govern the most powerful country in the, uh, in the world and, and make peace in the world. Here's this picture of his boy. And he said in the biography, I, have, I always have time for my children. And there's, n- no, there's never a time that my children can do wrong to interrupt me. And he would let them play hide and seek and uh, explore all the secret uh, corners and nooks and crannies of the Oval Office, including his desk, which had a secret door. And I offer you this picture as a picture of the heart of God. David went in. Even though he was king, and and the author wants to notice that he went in as king, he went in and he sat before the Lord. It was customary for priests alone to go into the tabernacle, to go into this presence of God. And there are so many requirements, so many uh, cleansing rituals they had to go to, And they had to ensure that they were in the most pure state. And yet here, King David, as he receives this wonderful promise from God, he has the audacity, he has the confidence 
to just go in to the presence of God even though he's not meant to, according to the Mosaic Law. And what does he do? He sat before the Lord. There are a few things we need to notice about this description here, that he sat before the Lord. First, again, for the priests, it was customary to stand in the Lord's presence. And yet here, so uncustomarily, he sits. And this word, in the original language, sit, it's the same word that God used to describe himself, to put David in his place in verse 6. Earlier, the Lord says to David, I have not lived. And that's the same word there. It can be translated in context in different ways, sat, dwell, live, but it's the exact same word. And so God is getting, the author wants us to see a contrast here, a comparing where the Lord said, I have not lived or sat in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. So God is saying that His presence, He's saying a few things. First, His presence, it's not fixed by a building, by an address, by a man-made structure. We cannot box God in. God is also saying that I'm happy in a tent because I love moving with my people. I lead my people. And he's saying that his presence is fine in a weak, fragile tent. And of course we know that the Lord here, in some manner of speaking, he's saying he's okay with being weak, but not only in some manner of speaking, literally, this was a foreshadow. Jesus, the second person of our Trinity God coming to this earth in the weakest possible form. And we celebrated that last week, being born as a helpless babe. So here's the big point. David is beginning to understand God's heart for his people to walk and sit with his people. As it's January 1st, 2017, Is that truth? Is that real in your heart? That God delights in walking and sitting with you. If He delighted in doing this with David before Christ, how much more does He long to personally walk and sit with you? And I hope that is the most freshness uh, that can come into your life in this first day of the new year. And so as David understands God's heart to walk and sit with his people, perhaps even to say in some ways, in some big picture way, I am reversing the curse. And as I miss walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve before sin entered this world, David, with you, I'm beginning to bring this back into my relationship with my people. And so as David understands this, so now David comes to walk and sit with his God. And now we begin to see some ahas of David. He has some aha moments. In verse 18, the narration continues, and he sat before the Lord, and David said, Who am I, O Lord God? David is now putting God at the very center. Not his kingship, not his opulence, not his uh, ability to show charity to God and build him a temple. But now the Lord is front and center. And what is my house that you 
have brought me this far. David is being liberated from his self-centeredness. He acknowledges that it has been God's sheer grace. You have brought me this far. And in verse 19, he says, And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes. David is having another aha. How deep and wide is the love of God, is the grace of God beyond His comprehension. And even this great, wonderful thing, I I don't know what it would be like for God to personally come to me and give me a personal promise. If I was King David, I I can't fathom that. Of course, I have that in Christ. You have that in Christ. But, But to literally be David and to receive this promise that spans generations and millennia and to the ends of, of, of time, I don't know what, what that... I, I don't think my mind could comprehend that. My mind would melt. And so David says here, even this great promise, it's so small. This, this amazing promise, it's nothing compared to the fullness of what you want to do in your people. And so today, with the new year upon us, I I, I challenge you, make a huge pile of all your hopes and dreams and wishes for 2017. Make a huge pile. And it's not even a grain of sand compared to all the seashores of all that God wants to do in and through you on this earth and for eternity. He has another aha. Verse 19. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while. And this is instruction for mankind. David is saying, essentially, I get it. In my limited ability, as you're revealing it to me, God, you're giving me a puzzle piece of something greater you want to do, the gospel. Of course, David didn't use that word, but we know that David was receiving bits and pieces of the gospel, and he realizes that this is not just for him and Israel, but all mankind. And so he is compelled to overflow. And so we see penned in so many psalms that he needs to go and tell all the nations what the Lord has done and what he is doing. And then in verse 20, he has another aha. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. And he's having a time of confession. He knows how imperfect he is. He knows how flawed and immoral and and deserving of really no grace. And the Lord knows that what David will do in a few years. The Lord knows already how David will fall from grace and commit adultery and murder and order a census to define his might and power by his population instead of looking to the Lord. The Lord knows. And yet, God gives us unconditional covenant. And David is relishing and worshiping before it. So all in all, David is coming face to face with this personal God. God who longs to sit with him, to walk with him, 
And David's personal hope is in this personal God. So where do we see the gospel here now? Where do we begin to see glimpses of our Jesus, the true son of David, the true Messiah that, that God promised to David? How does David's hope speak of Jesus Christ? There's only one thing that could outshine God's promises to David. And it's God's promise fulfilled. David, he was king and he could have the audacity to take it upon himself to say, I'm the king, move aside priest, I'm going to walk into this tabernacle, I'm going to break all customs, I'm going to sit before the Lord's presence. And David had the privy of having this box, the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized God's presence. David had all these privileges to go before God in very real concrete ways that, that we wish we could have. So what about you and me, just us commoners? We have no box to go to. We have no, no tabernacle to walk into. And none of us, I think, I mean, it would be news to me if any of us were uh, descendants of the tribe of Levi. <laughs> um, but if only David could look thousand years into the future. And he would see this, this little babe Jesus dwelling. Dwelling in flesh, not sitting. Maybe baby Jesus sat in his manger, but lying there swaddled in cloths. If only David could look a thousand years into the future and see Jesus welcoming the children and sitting at his feet him laying his hands on them and blessing them. If only David could, could look a thousand years down his bloodline and see crowds that were sheep with like without a shepherd. And Jesus sitting there with him and them at his feet and him feeding them the words of God, true eternal hope and showing them how God has been faithful to fulfill His promise to their great King David. And if only David could look a thousand years into the future and see Jesus reclined at the table close to the night of His betrayal, and this marginalized woman, this misfit woman, this morally questionable woman, having come to Him, broken into the party, taking her life savings in the form of this alabaster jar, and washing and anointing his feet with her tears mingled with this nard, and wiping it with her feet, or with her hair, his feet. The pictures of, of Jesus that we have, the, the closeness, if I may even use the word, the intimacy, that God has now brought to us through His Son and the way He invites you and me to sit at His feet, if only David could see. David longed for a closeness with God. And Jesus Christ and the Gospel have proven that it's the other way around. God ached to be close to us. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, he ached and longed to be close to us. 
So let me leave you with uh, three resolutions that come from the end of David's prayer here. First, and this is answering the so what. How is this meant to interact with my life? Not just interact, but go in and just turn my life upside down. First, resolve to let Jesus Christ be your hope. In verse 27, as he ends, notice how focused on the Lord he is. How centered on the Lord David is. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, he's repeating, addressing God three times here, have made this revelation. And the focus is God having given this divine revelation. It's not on David receiving, but the center of the universe here for David now is God to your servant. He could have written this very much the other way around, with him as the reference point. But instead, he says, to your servant, you've made the saying, I will, the Lord will build you a house. So God is the subject. He's the doer. He's the source. He's the reference point. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the end. He's the builder. And so I want to nuance this a bit. And this year, resolve to let Jesus be your hope as opposed to let, don't resolve to hope in Jesus and I want to explain that nuance very carefully because if you go to Scripture, the psalmist, and everywhere through Scripture, that phrase is there, to hope in the Lord. So I'm not saying it's a wrong phrase. I'm not trying to say that all these translations are wrong. But so easily, with our individualistic mindset, when we say, I want to hope in God, in Jesus, it comes with, a, 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 a as I hope in you, a, a return mentality. If I hope in you... If I pray to you, if I follow you, then I should be entitled to your blessings, entitled to you working out my life and doing me a favor. But no, what do we mean by let Jesus be hope? Let Jesus be your hope. The end, the goal is Jesus. Just to sit at his feet. So instead of getting things from God, you get God Himself. Verse 28, resolve to preach the gospel to yourself often, if not daily, in 2017. And I see this in David's prayer and the way he ends. And he says, and now, O Lord God, you are God. Again, just the reference point. God is so painfully the center here. And joyfully, just he's bursting with God being at the center here. And your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. David is, is repeating God's promises back to him. David is anchoring himself in God's word. And so the way I want to just translate that for you and me in our daily life, this resolve to preach the gospel to yourself. Return to the words of the gospel Daily. The context here for David is success. David has arrived. He's at the height of his glory. And so in success, returning to God's promises, his words, and for you and me, in success, I hope for, for all of us, if not you know, many of us, this year there will be success. But as we return to God's word, as we turn to the gospel, like David, be grounded by God's promises. That this success is just a tool 
in the hands of God, and you are a steward of that success to further His gospel purposes. But all the more, in 2017, if you experience suffering, some of you are in the midst of suffering right now, even as the clock is turned. As you're in suffering, let the gospel lift you. In success, let the gospel ground you. And in suffering, let the gospel lift you. Because the gospel reminds us, it, it, it brings us back to Jesus who is lifted on behalf of us in His suffering. And you should never need to doubt God's love and loyalty and presence with you because He suffered for you. So put it a bit more, even more concretely, as you resolve to preach the gospel to yourself, vocalize it. Talk it out with friends and family. Journal. Text Bible verses to friends. That's something, a bit of a mini-resolution for my, my wife and I. We, we want to do our best at least once a week to try to text a, a scripture verse to one another. As we're reading, as we're in our own times of scripture, hey, I read this. I, I wonder if this could encourage you. We're going to hold each other accountable to that. Sing his words. Tweet his words. Believe his words. Pray his words. Finally, third resolution. Resolve to hunger for God's eternal and incorruptible blessing. It's the one hope, the one promise that lasts into eternity beyond the frailty of this life. And it's incorruptible. Versus all the temporary and crumbling blessings of, of this world. So if you'll oblige me and, and let me stand on a soapbox right now. And this is one of my gripes with just uh, modern life. And, 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 and it's a gripe against positive thinking. And this is how I got incited again this past week. And as... Uh, I was sitting next to my sick daughter and we were just channel surfing, came on uh, upon the tail end of a talk show. And, and my point isn't to out a single certain person. The host of this show, I'm not even going to say who it is, but this person is a, is a wonderful human being, very funny. Um, but at the end of this person's show, they end with the words, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. And this person, this host, says it every show. And that got me upset. Because, yes, it's the second commandment. It's the golden rule to love your neighbor as yourself. But the second commandment without the first commandment is a zero commandment. And it's not enough just to think positive for this life. That's a temporary hope again. And temporary hope, if I can be so bold to say that, it's like an illicit drug. You get addicted to temporary hope. You need to go after that temporary hope again and again and again because like an illicit drug, after you have it, it leaves you worse than before and it leaves you addicted, needing it more and more. And sure, this positivity, it, it does work. So first, let me say, at, at the least, yes. Praise God for His common grace where there are positive people looking for solutions and, and trying to move forward. That is a wonderful thing. That is a sign of God's common grace. But... That positive thinking will fail when eternity passes, when Christ returns. And in fact, uh, just on the radio, 
There's an advertisement again for a, a, a very famous Christian preacher. And they were bra- broadcasting or making an advertisement for their New Year's program. And saying, 2017 is your year. Accelerate your life in 2017. Become everything you can be. Right? And I'll admit, I was sold for a little bit too. Like, I kind of want to listen to this. But that message, it's offensive to the eight-year-old girl named Ava. Who, there's been a following on Facebook of this girl who passed away last night at 12.01. That's the way she welcomed in the New Year. She went on to be with the Lord after a lifelong battle with incurable diseases, just a whole ugly concoction of diseases in her body. That's offensive to the mother. 2017 is your year. It's just lost her daughter. That's offensive to my father-in-law and anyone in your family who is struggling with suffering, physical suffering or emotional suffering. That's offensive to, to people who every day wake up with a different symptom and, and just are living their life with a big question mark in front of them. That's offensive to all the people across the globe who are in the crossfire. And, and every day they're uncertain whether they'll just even make it by walking to the grocery store or to school. But the gospel, the gospel is, is more sincere and realistic gives you a hope in your suffering and in your success. David said at one point in his prayer, because of your promise, I have courage to pray this prayer. And the gospel is more realistic and sincere in that it doesn't deny the brokenness of this life. But it holds out to you and me this promise to say 2017 might not be your ear circumstantially. Something might happen that you did not see coming. But because you're sitting at my feet, because you see me lifted up on the cross, you can have a courage and a strength to face those those travesties. No matter how you end in this life, whether on top of the world or in a dark valley, when eternity passes, you will be in the one true, guaranteed, and only glory, sitting with me in my presence forever. began with Franklin Graham's thought, and he ended his thought this way. Our time on earth is brief. The Bible says like a vapor, and each of us will stand before Almighty God to give account The decision that will determine where we spend eternity is whether we have believed in His Son, Jesus Christ, trusting Him as our Savior and following Him as Lord. There are no VIP passes or exceptions. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. and There is no way to the Father except through me. I appreciate Franklin Graham's compassion here. I hope each of these people had made that all-important decision before they took their last breath on earth. Have you? If you haven't, call on Him today. Don't delay.
Let's pray.